The reading this morning is on page 1176 of the Bibles. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness righteousness and truth and find out what pleases the Lord have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness but rather expose them for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret but everything exposed by the light becomes visible for it is light that makes everything visible this is why it is said wake up O sleeper rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we just sang these words. We will worship him, we will sing to him, we will live for him. And so, Father, we ask that by your Spirit's enabling, as we come to this word now, which is centered on living for Christ, we pray that you would give us understanding and the strength to live it out. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've reached that time of year where Christmas is an ever-distant memory, and we're moving on to the year ahead. Uh, Perhaps this weekend you've been putting the decorations away. Anyone got them out still? Uh, go home now, put them away. Uh, You've probably finished the last mince pie I did yesterday, and you can't bear to hear another Christmas song. And all of us start looking on to 2020 and the next 12 months. Uh, And often at this time, we reflect, don't we, and look ahead to the new year and think about some resolutions we're going to make, like shifting all the weight we put on at Christmas, uh, learning a new skill, uh, desiring to see more people, and we know probably those resolutions will only last a couple of weeks, and, uh, but we tell ourselves at least we tried. But this morning, as we're thinking about the year ahead, as we're making our resolutions, 
I wanted us to have Ephesians 5 right at the heart of it, because Ephesians 5 is all about God's priorities for us as Christians and his priorities for the church. And God shows us, if you like, what matters most is not a weight loss plan. It's not a plan to be more organized and more tidy. Here he shows what his desire is for us as a church. And I think we'll find what's in here much more appealing, much more doable, and actually much more enticing than any New Year's resolutions we might uh, have but then fail at. Um, I realize we're diving into Ephesians uh, cold. Uh, Just to give you a bit of background, it's written by the Apostle Paul. And the thing to know about the book of Ephesians is it is a book that can be cut in two. It is a book of two halves. Now, the first half, chapters 1 to 3, deals generally with what God has done through Jesus to us. And the second half, chapters 4 to 6, is about the church's response to that. Just have a look at chapter 4, verse 1 here. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. And that's like the hinge of the book, if you like. Uh, He he talks about the calling, that's chapters 1 to 3. And then the second half is about living a life worthy. And see, we as Christians are called to live a life worthy uh, in response to what Jesus has done to us. Uh, And back over the page in our chapter today, uh, you get this repeat of the word live throughout. Verse 2 He says, live a life of love. Verse 8, for you once in darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. And verse 15, be very careful then how you live. And so this passage, chapter 5, is all about live, live, live. And in fact, those three lives, those three commands, uh, form our three points on the back of the service sheet. So here we see, first of all, that we are given a new pattern to, to live by. We're given a new resolution uh, uh, to, to, to put in place, and it is about following the right model. Uh, look at verse 1 uh, of chapter 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. So Paul starts by saying you're to live by imitating the God you're served. But notice the reason why, he says, as dearly loved children. So he's not saying imitate God to get in his good books. He's not saying imitate God to win a place in heaven. He's saying now you're in God's family, you're to be like the Father. And I've lost my place. See, back in chapter 1, verse 5, I don't know why I've put that there, but we'll go with it. Chapter 1, verse 5, yes, that's right, yes, yes. The trouble is I wrote this before Christmas, so uh, I've had to warm it up in the microwave this morning and uh, not quite sure I grew my pre-Christmas self. But anyway, we'll go with it. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, In love, uh, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. See, the point is that Jesus doesn't just save us and leave us in the waiting room for heaven. He brings us already into the family home. And Paul says, look, now you're, in, you're no longer in the orphanage, you're now at the family table, you're to imitate God, because you've already been made his children. Uh, I'm at that age now, where, or my children are at that age rather, where they're starting to imitate me, and it's really uh, weird. <laughs> I saw my son uh, walking along with his hands in his pockets uh, like this, and I thought, why is he doing that? Uh, and Claire pointed out that's exactly the way I walk. 
And um, once we caught our daughter telling her baby to stop it and go and sit on the naughty step and telling her off. And I thought, I don't sound like that, do I? But probably do. But th- that's the point, isn't it? Children copy their parents. Like father, like son, we say. Like mother, like daughter. And it is the same as Christians. As God's children, we're to be like our father. Now, in what sense do we imitate God? Because um, some of us might be asking the question, well, God does God-like things, doesn't he? He creates the world. He upholds the universe. That's pretty difficult uh, even for us to copy. But Paul explains how we're to imitate in verse 2. He says, live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you see the point, isn't it? Imitating God is not doing God's job. It's to imitate him, it's to love with God's love. See, Paul's point in Ephesians is that we didn't deserve to be in the family home. None of us do. But by Jesus' blood, he has brought us in. By Jesus giving up his sonship on the cross, being forsaken by his father, he has made people like you and me his children. And that love should set our whole lives, he says. That's the thing we're to imitate. You're aware of the, the North Star. Um, it's uh, guided more people, perhaps, than any star ever has, uh, but none of us can really find it where it is. Uh, we have a guess. Um, the point is, the North Star stays where it is, doesn't it? And for centuries, people in ships and uh, walkers uh, uh, have used it to guide them. And his, it's like Paul saying that 5 verse 1 is your North Star. It's your pole star. The love of Christ is to be your reason for being. It's to be your desire. It's to be what you display. See, often I think in the Christian life, it's easy to miss that, isn't it? We describe the gospel as Jesus dying for sin, and so we're forgiven, and that is absolutely true. But actually, Jesus dying for us wasn't the final step. It wasn't an end in itself. See, I always find this a challenge in John chapter 13. He says this, a new command I give you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must now love one another. See, Jesus is saying, I've loved you, so you're meant to love one another. Now, we might be asking the question, what does that look like? How do we do it? Well, Paul goes on to show us, and um, I'm afraid we haven't got time to, to look in detail, but he starts by saying what it doesn't look like. He says, verse 3, there should be no hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed or, because these are improper for God's holy people. Do you see? They don't fit with being God's children. See, often I think our culture thinks that we invented sex in the 1960s, but Ephesians made our um, culture look very reserved because they had a, a, a goddess, Artemis, right in the center who was a goddess of fertility. And around the temple, I'll leave it you know, unsaid, but there was all sorts of acts that went on uh, to try and get this goddess to act. And Paul says, don't copy them. See, sexual morality is the opposite to love, isn't it? See, sex, of course, is a good thing. God invented it, after all. But don't follow the way of the Ephesians. Don't follow the culture of our day, because so often sex is treated for what I can get, what I can be satisfied with. But that is the opposite of being God's children. And it's similar with the word greed. In fact, he uses the word covet there, and that describes that desire to have something that someone else has. And again, Ephesus was a rich society. And there was every temptation just to go with the cultural flow. 
But that desire to grasp everything for myself is not the way of love. It doesn't reflect the God who gave himself for us. Do you see the point? See, as Christians, we have a completely different North Star. We have a new reason for living the way we live. We don't follow the siren call of our culture. And I wonder, as we think about our New Year's resolutions, perhaps you, you don't, but perhaps as you think about the year ahead, I wonder if this is at your the front and center of your priorities. Uh, just as I've been walking into work recently, I found myself thinking about the year and thinking, what would I like to do this year? And I've been thinking about things, I found myself thinking about playing the piano and learning to code and those sort of things. And, and I forgot this. I just thought, actually, those things are about serving me and my interests. Actually, what would it look like for you, Rob, to have Christ's love at your center And I wonder what would this look like for us as a church to not be driven by the sexual morality of our culture, to not be driven by greed, but to reflect Christ's self-giving love to one another. That'd be something worth discussing afterwards. But here we see also that it's not just a new relationship with God, but we have a new relationship with the world, which brings us on to our second point. See, for the Christian, there has been a dramatic transformation. Look at um, 5 verse 8. He says here, for you were, once, uh, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now, the idea of darkness in Ephesians is the idea of ignorance, of not knowing. And Paul says that that is the state of the world. You don't have to turn there, but in chapter 4, verse 18, he says they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Now, Paul is not saying that the world is stupid. He's not making a comment on people's IQ. But he's saying that when, the, when it comes to knowing what God is doing in the world, when it comes to the gospel, actually, we just are in the dark. We don't know. No matter how much we guess, we just don't know what God is doing. Uh, occasionally cycling home, um, I find that uh, my bike light runs out of battery. And, uh, of course, I still need to get home. And uh, as I'm riding up um, past the rector's house, it gets very, very dark. And it's just pure guesswork uh, riding home because you just can't see in front of you and very often I'll hit something, hopefully not an animal or something. But uh, you, you get the point, don't you? The world is like that. It's like the bike light is not on. Now, we don't say that with any sense of pride. Paul reminds us that we were once in darkness. But notice verse 8, what he now says. But you are now light in the Lord. You're no longer left guessing. God has switched the light on. But the way he puts things here in verse 8, I don't know if you've spotted it, it's just absolutely fascinating. It's not as you would expect. See, read verse 8 again. I don't know how you would expect it to go. For me, I think I read it as, for you were once in darkness, but now you're in the light. Do you read it like that? I read it like that. But that's not actually what it says, is it? It says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. See, notice the difference there. He's saying you are light. It's not that you've kind of walked from a dark room into a light room. It's like you're the light bulb in the dark room. See, I think this is very subtle, but I think this is important because, first of all, it shows us that we're still in that world of darkness. We're not separate from the world. We're still going to be in a world that doesn't know God that is in ignorance in terms of uh, knowing him. Uh, Which is why I think Paul says in verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. 
because he knows that there will be that temptation around us to follow the way that everyone else is going. But secondly, this is absolutely fascinating, notice what else he says in verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. See, here's the thing, Paul doesn't want Christians to gather as a holy huddle away from the world, he wants us to shine a light on the world, not in a way that embarrasses people or uh, rips into them, but shows them what's good and what's true and what's right in the world. And here's the thing he says will happen, verse 13, everything exposed with light becomes visible, for it is the light that makes everything visible. Now, that's quite complicated, that bit. Stay with me on this, because it's worth it. But um, he's basically saying there, in verse 13, that when you shine light on something, it becomes visible. And that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Um, Where my study is at home, when I get up uh, this time of year, it's pitch black. You cannot see a thing. But when the floodlight kicks in because of a fox or a rat or something like that, um, the rats have gone now, uh, the floodlight kicks on and the whole place is lit up and everything becomes visible. See, that's the, the point of verse 13. But actually, verse 14 goes on a bit further, doesn't it? Because verse 14 literally reads, for anything that is lightened is light. See, what Paul is saying is that as you are out in the world being light, other people will become light. Other people will become Christians. It's like my children. They have um, these glow-in-the-dark stars. I'm forever hooving them up around the house. And um, if you're in the dark and you get these glow-in-the-dark stars and you shine a torch on them, they become visible. You see what they are. But actually, if you shine enough light on them for enough time, they not only become visible themselves, but they actually start to shine light back to you. And Paul is saying the same about a Christian. See, it's as we live as light, as we live distinctively, that people will see that light, and some will become light. See, it's as we live in our dark world as light, as we live that distinctive life as a Christian, that life of love, that people will see that light and become Christians themselves. I've got a good friend of mine who's a vicar now, um, and I met him years ago when we were both um, at university, and uh, he became a Christian at the similar time to me, and um, he came from a similar background, except that he was a rugby player. And um, rugby players at university, if you've ever been to university, you know, I'm sorry if you are a rugby player here, and not all of them are like this, but they're not the most morally upright uh, people, or they haven't got the reputation for that. Wednesday nights in the pub, you just would avoid, because you know them. And he was one of these guys, and he became a Christian. It was an amazing transformation. And I asked him, I remember asking him, what, what was it that caused you to become a Christian? And he said one word, holiness. It was the holiness of others. He looked at that holiness and looked at his own life and thought that was attractive. And Paul says it's as Christians, as we, St. Mary's, are out in the world doing that work that some people will be drawn to the light and some people will become like themselves. Maybe you think to yourself, surely I can have no impact. I'm not very articulate. I'm not very good at thinking on my feet. And so at work, you're very tempted just to kind of keep your head down and carry on like everyone else. But Paul says, no. As you're distinctive, as you live out as light in your workplace, in the supermarket, in the office, in the building site, actually some people will be attracted to that. Perhaps in friendship groups amongst our NCT classes, as we do that work of living distinctively, people will be drawn to it. 
See, part of the reason I think the Christian faith in our culture today is so struggling is because it's lost its distinctiveness. See, it wants to be contemporary. It wants to uh, appear normal. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't appear normal. We don't need to be weird. But we, we do need to be distinct. We do need to live as light in our dark world. Because that is the way that the church grows. That is the way people are drawn to it. And it's worth thinking about, isn't it, this next year. What would it look like for me to have that distinctiveness in my workplace, in my friendship group, in my family? Final, our final point here we see that it's not only our relationship with God, it's not only our relationship with the world that's transformed, but fascinatingly, our relationship with time is changed here. Have a look at verse 15, our final live. He says this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Now, when he says there, the days of evil, he's not saying they're immoral. He's not saying there's a lot of evil behavior. That might be true, but that's not Paul's point. Rather, he's describing our age. See, have a look at chapter 2, verse 2, back over the page. You're doing very well with the page flicking. Thank you for bearing with me. Look at the way he describes our age. He says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, whose spirit is now at the work in those who are disobedient. See, he's saying that there's an evil one, and he's still at work today. But So he's saying that this age is an evil age. But notice what he calls him. He calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's basically a cuss. It's basically saying he's dissing him and saying he's got no power. He may be at work, but he's got no kingdom. It's just air. It's just a vacuum. And Paul's point is that this whole age is coming to a close. Uh, the evil one might be at work, but our age has an expiry date. And so back over the page, he says, make the most of every opportunity. And some of you may know this, that the word he uses is the word for redeem, redemption. It's the idea of buying back. See, we don't live aimlessly. We don't live as if we don't know what the future is. We make the most of the time. We live knowing that this age has an expiry date and Jesus will return. Now, a lot of you are very, very capable business people and uh, you'll know that time instinctively is a limited resource, isn't it? You go around saying time is money, time is money. Perhaps you don't, but um, you know the point. And imagine if you're a business person that you've got a deal at the end of January. You receive the offer and you know you've got to close it and you know that time is going to be pressured. What are you going to be doing? to close that deal. You won't be on the golf course. That would be pretty stupid, unless it's a golf deal. And it's similar here, isn't it? Our present age has an expiry date. The deal will be done. Jesus will return. Everyone will meet him. And so that sets our whole priority for this age. That's why Paul says in verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Now, when I first saw that, I thought, here's a random instruction about drinking. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Because when you, don't, you drink, when you don't have anything to do, if you had a business deal the next day, you wouldn't be getting drunk. And so for Christians to get wasted, it just doesn't make sense because we need to be sober. We know where history is heading. And perhaps after the Christmas break, after overindulging, a few of us might need to remind, remind ourselves of that again. And so how are we to live? Well, verse 18 goes on. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't normally do this, but um, that word filled with the Spirit, that phrase, 
is not the most helpful translation because I think it suggests to us that the Spirit is something that we can be filled up with. And actually, the Bible never commands us as an imperative to get more of the Spirit. And in fact, the grammar doesn't really work that way. See, actually, uh, all the Greek experts on this say the better word is by. We're to be filled by the Spirit, but filled with something else. And so what are we to be filled with? We'll look back at chapter 3, verse 12. Here's Paul's vision for the church. To prepare God's people... Do I mean 3.12? No, I mean 3.19. Where have I got that from? Goodness me. 3.19. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. See, here's Paul's aim for the church, that we're filled to the fullness of God. It's back to that idea in verse 1, that we're to imitate God, we're to be more like Jesus. See, time is limited. We know this age is going to be fade. And his desire for us is that we grow up to be like Christ, to reach the fullness of God. I don't know about you, maybe this is just me, but I I think sometimes it can just be hard to know what we're meant to do before Christ returns or before we die and meet him. Um, I'm a bit of a graph person. I don't know if this helps you. But I wonder if sometimes our Christian life is like this graph. Um, This is conversion. Sorry, this is a kind of axis of excitement versus time, if that makes sense. Uh, Don't worry. Ignore it if it's not helpful. But uh, I wonder with conversion, we kind of pop up a bit and things get very exciting. Uh, obviously. And then um, this bit over here, I don't know why it's sloped, that's not very helpful, but this is kind of going to glory and meeting Jesus. Um, It's not a slope, it's normally, it should be a straight line. Anyway, pick me up afterwards. Uh, But this is the important bit. The middle bit, I just don't, I think often we don't know what to do, so we just kind of think, well, we'll, you know, twist our, twiddle our thumbs and kind of get on with career and work and family and that sort of thing. And, uh, And then we think about these things when we Uh, get to uh, close to the end of our lives. But actually, Ephesians transforms that graph into this. See, the conversion, Paul says, is just the start of it. Actually, your whole lives from now, you don't have to wait until Jesus returns or the day you die, is about attaining the fullness of God. It's becoming more like Jesus, progressively. I mean, if I was to draw this graph properly, have little zigzag lines and all that sort of thing, but the general trend is towards becoming more like Jesus. See, God is in the business of making a resolution to transform us, not just to save us and leave us in the waiting room for heaven, but to see us become more like his son. And I've seen that over the years. I hope you two have as well, where you've seen people utterly transformed, gripped by the gospel, become Christians, and then gradually become more like Jesus. I've seen it in this church, and it's the most encouraging thing to see. See, I know my life often loses focus, I often drift, I often put my priorities in other places. But we need to come back to this, don't we? That actually God is in the business of making us full in Christ. As we close, I, I, I called this um, sermon... Uh, an alternative New Year's resolution, because I wasn't quite happy with a New Year's resolution. See, the thing about resolutions is they're often very much about serving us. So we think, I'll get the weight loss plan in place, and I'll practice piano, and I'll learn to code, and and then there'll be some reward for me when I do those things. But we often don't succeed in those resolutions, and we know they fail, and so it can feel like a noose around our neck. 
And we must remember that when God tells us these things in chapter 5, it's not like that. It's not some resolution list we have to go through. It's not some 10-step plan that if we succeed, we be with him, and if we fail, we lose him. See, actually, it is all about a response to what Christ has done for us. Just a final bit of page flicking, chapter 2, verse 4. I want to close with this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Notice what it says about us. We were dead in transgressions. See, spiritually speaking, we were flatlining. We were in the grave. But notice what else it says. Because of his great love for us, God made us alive. See, that same grace that makes us alive is the same grace that transforms us into a new people, a new people with a pattern, a new pattern, a new purpose, and a new priority. And so as we think ahead to 2020, will we have these priorities right at the center? And it might be useful to go away, it will be useful to go away today and think through what I want out the next year, even the next decade, and to think what would it look like to have this pattern, this purpose, this priority at the center? might also be worth going through different areas of our lives, different spheres, work and family and friends, and thinking through what does it look like to reflect this in each of these areas, and then committing those things to the Lord who does the work by His Spirit. Let's pray. To love and serve in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.